Hello, Bethel fandom, and welcome to Keep Singing, a Bethel and Beth Green and Daryl Dixon podcast. I am your host, Dynamic Symmetry, Sunny, in various places. And welcome. This is... Shit, what episode is this? This is episode four. Yeah, wow. I didn't know when I started this exactly how long this was going to go, but so far I think that we're doing pretty good. I want to thank all of you who've been listening so far for contributing to that because, as I keep saying, I really depend on you guys to help me with ideas, to send me fic recs, to send me comments, to send me content, basically. And you've all delivered marvelously, and I thank you so much for that. Today's episode is going to be focusing primarily on writing, which I think is cool because I'm a writer, and my sense is that although we produce wonderful works in terms of art, we produce gift sets, we produce fan art, we produce all kinds of things, one of the primary kinds of fan work around which this fandom organizes is fan fiction. So I think that there's a lot to talk about there, and in fact, yeah, uh, you guys sent in all kinds of things to discuss, so I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Uh, but before I do that, I want to get into fic recs. I have a ton of recs, and in fact, I'm going to have to do some of them next time. Um, something that I think I might have to start doing, given how many recs I get, is actually break them up sometimes. So if you send me fic recs, they may not appear in the podcast that you sent them for. They might actually appear next time. So just know that if they don't show up, it's not because I forgot them or didn't write them down. Probably. It's just because I had to make some cuts to conserve some time. So getting into the wrecks, uh, we have What We Became Along the Way by Armbarred Wings, which is on AO3. It's a work in progress. It's been recently updated. It is divergent from the end of season two in a now-then style. Apparently, I have not read this. And the summary is they've been out on the road too long. He knows that. Too much time out in the wild, and he's begun to forget what safety feels like begun to forget how to be around people, how to be around anyone but her, which sounds intriguing, don't you think? Next is The Hunt by Saya078, AO3 and FF.net. It is another work in progress. It's post-coda, Beth lives, obviously, and there are some supernatural elements. And I really personally like, I mean, okay, you can argue that The Walking Dead already has supernatural elements, given that, you know, you got dead people walking around, but... I think, you know, we can we can kind of draw a distinction between the supernatural elements in terms of zombies and then other kinds. So this has that, apparently. Next, Fall Right In by Abelina. And I actually asked... One of the things that I asked for this time, and you know, I'm throwing open the door for this regardless. I think that people should feel free to do this. Wreck yourself. Like, that's completely fine to do. Abelina sent this in. Uh, one of the things that I asked... When I sent out calls for content for this particular episode was, you know, if somebody is not familiar with your work and they're going to come to you for the first time, what do you think is the best introduction? And I said, wreck yourself. Tell people about you. Tell people, here is the best example of me if you want to get a sense of me and you're not familiar with me. So this is what she sent in. Uh, I know that this is a fabulous piece of work. I have regretfully not read all of it because I continue to be absolutely terrible at reading long works in progress. It is a long work of progress. It is being updated pretty consistently. It's on AO3. And the summary is, if Beth hadn't interrupted him when she did, calling him back with the melody of her voice, he might have done something dumb like opening the door for a doomed dog and maybe doing them both while he was at it. 
Beth and Daryl escape the funeral home together. Uh, this is a lone divergence. Uh, no getting kidnapped. No getting overrun by zombies. Uh, there is a little bit of Grady that kind of shows up in some sort of ways that we were kind of theorizing the funeral home might actually fit into the Grady arc. It's really cool. Um, I get the sense that this is actually a fairly well-known fic, but if you haven't read it, you completely should. Uh, Though She Were Dead, by Heart Iconography, Postcoda. Work in progress, not recently updated. Uh, Again, I I try to make that clear to people because sometimes people really care about that and sometimes people don't. Sometimes people are frustrated by fics that haven't been recently updated and sometimes it doesn't matter to people. This has not been recently updated, but... You know, if you're interested in it, it is there, and it is apparently good. Another one I haven't read. On AO3, the summary, which intrigues me, partly because I do love my angst. Maybe a man can love a broken thing if he, too, himself is broken. And, you know, God, I love it when people are completely fucking broken. That's so great. And finally, and this is another one where uh, somebody's wrecking themselves, uh, specifically Punky Nemo and the Vampire Cat, it's on AO3. It's a series. It's called Where the Tracks Meet. This is something else that I've read a little bit of, it, and I know it's great, but I haven't been able to sit down and actually give it a close look. It's very high on my to-be-read list, and you should absolutely check it out, because again, I do know that it's good. Again, AO3 series, it's set in Terminus. They've escaped the boxcar and got Beth back and set up camp at Terminus while they work out how to get Eugene to DC, which sounds so much fun, doesn't it? And and unusual, because I don't know personally that I've run into too many things where they don't leave Terminus, where they actually kind of stay. And that would have been interesting, don't you think? If they hadn't completely blown it to hell and had actually, you know, killed all the termites, but had actually stayed and tried to work something out for themselves there, because it did seem like it wasn't the worst kind of place to hole up. Anyway, uh, she says it's basically Daryl being awkward as fuck around Beth, and how much can... You love that. I mean, that's just great. Apparently it's fluff. And I I love my angst. I love stuff when it just gets absolutely disturbing, which, again, you should know if you know me. But I also just love it when things are fluffy. So what I'm going to kick off next is a piece of meta. And something that I did, I think in episode two, was I did all meta. I had people send me requests of things to ramble about. And that was fun enough, and people seemed to enjoy it enough, that that is something that I would kind of like to make a regular feature. I, I've mentioned this before, I think, but it's it's something that I'm still kind of trying to, to get going. And I'm happy, I guess, to do my own meta, but I generally have the most fun when people send me specific stuff that they want me to get into. So send me meta requests. Please, please, please do that. I love rambling about it, and it's a lot of fun. And yeah. So this is this installment of the Meta Corner, which is a terrible name, and I don't think I'm going to end up calling it that. So this is actually, this goes back to, this goes back to that episode where I I spent the whole time on Meta, and it also kind of hooks up with a request that somebody sent recently for something specifically about Beth. And and they, they mentioned, and they are completely correct, and this is actually a failing of mine. I personally think that I've been spending a lot of time meta wise on Daryl and I have, it's not that I haven't been talking about Beth, but I haven't been talking about her as much. And the reason for that is you see this in my fic. It's a lot easier for me to get into Daryl's head and to think and talk about Daryl than it is for me to get into Beth's head. And it's not that I don't absolutely love Beth. It's just kind of how my brain works. But I do want to talk a lot more about Beth because really that's kind of what this podcast is supposed to be. Yes, absolutely. Daryl, and Beth together, but it should be kind of equal. So somebody asked 
in episode two or around episode two, if I would talk a little bit about kind of what these characters' thought processes were after the big fight in Still. And then this person asked for Beth, specifically. So I thought that it might be kind of interesting to talk a little bit about Beth's thought process post-fight in Still. And I think that that's especially cool because this isn't just me. I think this is something that a lot of us do. Spending a lot of time thinking about what was going through Daryl's head. This was such a big moment for him. What was he thinking about? What did he kind of take away from that? And what happened between the back hug and the porch conversation? Which, those are kind of like proper nouns, right? Those have capital letters and and shit. And yeah, you know, what's going on with Daryl in those moments is so interesting. and, And there's so much that you can talk about there. But what's going on with Beth, I think, in some respects, might be even a little bit more interesting. Because that's such a moment of power for her. And here's the thing about Beth. You guys, here's the thing about fucking Beth. So we all know how great she is. And we all know that one of the reasons why she's so great is that she's, her power, a lot of her power is derived from being emotionally supportive. And one of the reasons why that's so important is that we tend, it's a gender thing, we tend to frame being emotionally supportive. We feminize it because we feminize emotion and support and community and caretaking. And because we feminize it, we devalue it because we devalue every fucking thing we feminize. So because Beth is so much like that, because she's so much that way, and that's so much a part of who she is and who her role is in in Team Family, that's one of the reasons why I think people shit on her. You know, how, how, what good is emotional support in the zombie apocalypse when in fact, you know what? Try being human in the zombie apocalypse without emotional support, motherfucker. Seriously, give it a go. So this is an incredibly important part of who she is on the show. But I don't think that you see very much of it until that moment. I don't think that it really comes into play in a big way. Until after, well really, during during the fight and then immediately after. That's when you really start to see her doing that. Not in a way that she hasn't done it before, but in a way that it's a little bit less low-key and it's much more in your face. It's almost aggressive caretaking because... That's kind of why she breaks him in that fight. She absolutely refuses to back down. You know, she's not hitting him back. And that's one of the reasons why he responds the way he does, because she shows him explicitly that he's safe with her. He can lash out at her. He can hurt her. He can be incredibly cruel to her. He can take his her weak points that he knows about, because he's Daryl, and he can hit them as hard as he can think to do that. And she'll stand her ground, but she won't hit back. And that's one of the things he's familiar with. He's familiar with emotional engagements that are high intensity like that as being combative. You know, he hits, someone hits back, he hits, someone hits back, or he hits and that person just kind of curls up and slinks away, which is, you don't really see that so much with Carol, I think. I I wouldn't characterize like like that in that one awful scene in season two. Carol also kind of stands her ground, but she doesn't, she's not in that point yet where she stands her ground, where she would stand her ground the way she would now or even in season three. She's not that yet. She's still at a point where she's kind of standing her ground, but you can see that she's also weakening a little bit because she's an abuse survivor too, and she's been conditioned in in very much the same way he has. But Beth does it differently. Beth is clearly upset. She doesn't hide the fact that she's upset, but she doesn't back down. And she does things that you might think are lashing out. If If you look at it, we characterize it as a fight a lot of the time. I don't think it's fair to characterize it that way because 
fight implies combativeness. And that's not really what she's doing because when she is responding to him, she's not trying to hurt him. And when you're dealing with a situation of emotional combat, both parties are trying to hurt each other. Both parties are are taking shots. Both parties are employing ammunition. And she's not doing that. She's just saying... I mean, she's saying, she's saying explicitly what she says. You don't get to treat me like this. You're full of shit. You're afraid. You're only doing this because you're scared and you don't want to let anybody get close to you because you're frightened of being hurt. And you don't get to treat me like this, dude. Bro, you don't. And that's not aggressive. That's assertive. You know, we, we draw strong distinctions between those two things. And that's the distinction here. And even that almost aggressive assertiveness, I would say. Her, her pushing back really hard without trying to hurt him. I think it would actually be fair to characterize that as a form of emotional support because it's also refusing to leave this person alone. She refuses to turn on her heel and leave. Uh, she won't fold emotionally, she won't cry, and she won't run away whether physically or emotionally or mentally, she won't withdraw from that situation. And because she doesn't withdraw, she doesn't leave him alone. And that's incredibly meaningful, that she doesn't abandon him in order to protect herself. She's protecting herself, absolutely. She's defending herself, but she isn't leaving him. And I think that actually, I've in the past said that the most powerful thing about that for him was that she didn't hit back in a way that she was trying to hurt him. But I think that it's... It's as important or possibly even more important that she didn't abandon him. She didn't leave him alone. And when he broke down, she was there for him in a physical way, in an emotional way, really in every way that she possibly could be. And I don't think that was just a really big moment for him. I think that was a huge moment for her. And I'll tell you why. She has previously been emotionally supportive, but she hasn't been emotionally supportive like that. And and one of the things that gets said about these two characters, and I, I fucking hate it, is that, I've talked about this before, that she, uh, you know, she taught him to feel and he taught her to fight. And that's, we've already talked about how that's bullshit. And I think most of us know that that's pedal bullshit because he was already feeling city and she already knew how to fight. She was firing an assault rifle in the finale of mid-season finale of season four. I mean, come on. But what he did do was show her, I think, in some very important ways how she was already strong or, or new ways that she could use her strength. And I think that that's a lot of, a lot of that is what she took to Grady, that she could push back really strongly, that she didn't have to back down, and that she could care for people in ways that she might not have really been conscious of. So that was a moment where she understood her own strength in a new way because she wasn't just forcing this guy to do things like look for people and to do things like talk to her and to connect emotionally. She wasn't just doing that because she's been up until that point very forceful about her demands that he connect with her. She's also realizing, I can care for this person by just being there in in a different kind of way. And I, I think that one of the reasons why the, the hug in Still is so great, and I'm not I'm by no means the first person to note this, I just think it's important to note it at this point, is that it's a direct callback to 30 Days Without an Accident. She's hugging him to offer comfort, again, because when she's doing it in 30 Days Without an Accident, that's why she's doing it. She, I think, is looking for physical comfort because she regards hugs that way. You hug somebody when you're happy, 
You hug them when you're you're happy to see them. You hug them when you want to express affection. But hugging is also a form of emotional support. You hug somebody when they're upset. You hug somebody when they're sad. And she can see in that scene that Daryl's actually like more upset than she is. Or at least he is more in touch with how upset he is. She has kind of detached a little bit. I mean, she, when Daryl says, you know, you, you've lost two boyfriends and you can't shed a tear, he's not completely wrong, I think. I think that he has, per, because he's a perceptive motherfucker, he has seen correctly that she has been doing a little, of, a little detaching of her own. And she's not doing it so much then when he's yelling at her, but it is something that she's done. It is a kind of a coping mechanism she's employed. Not all, not all the time, but it is something that she's done. And she is being strong in the sense of being detached in that scene in 30 days. Whereas he is very, very upset and is making no attempt to hide the fact that he's upset. He's upset in a low-key way, but he's very upset. She sees that. She hugs him because that's what you do. And, you know, there's the he, he reacts so wonderfully awkwardly and pats her elbow. And it's just, oh, fucking God, Daryl. And then she does it again and still. And she is giving him emotional support again because he's the one who's breaking. And I think that that was probably such an important moment for her to know that she could be there. And, you know, this is... We talk about the age difference. I talked about the age difference a good bit back when I was doing the Smut episode, talking about it in the context of power dynamics when you're talking about sex. But I think that this is something that I don't like about the age difference in terms of the discourse around it, in terms of how we talk about it, and in terms of how people who are aggressively against the ship talk about it. We talk about it almost exclusively in terms of, of, of sex. And I think it's appropriate to do that because power dynamics are most evident, I think, when you're dealing with, with sex. But the other thing is, and I think this gets talked about less, are the power dynamics regarding an age difference in every other situation. And we don't, we don't know what Beth's feelings about their age difference are. We never get a sense of that. We never get a sense of what Daryl thinks. I think it's reasonable to suppose that they don't really think about it much at all on a conscious level. But to the extent that she does, and she may, I think that this also was a moment for her where she... If the age difference mattered to her, it mattered abruptly a lot less because... You know, there's this guy who, again, we don't know exactly how old Daryl is. Uh, I, I think recently I saw a post flitting around interview, I think with Norman, and he said that, you know, I think I think he's season four. He said he thought Daryl was about 35. Personally, I think that's way under young. My headcanon is that in season four, Daryl is in his late 30s. That feels right to me. I think it, it makes sense that he's probably about twice her age. Or close to it. Here's this guy who's who's twice her age, who's physically a lot more powerful than she is, who is far more experienced in terms of living in the world. But she also recognizes in, in a serious way, I think, that he is vulnerable in a way that makes him almost childlike. It's, it's, it's cliche to use the phrase hurt little boy, but he is. He's a hurt, scared little boy. And her, her natural in, inclination is to reach out and try to protect that. And that is a very important moment, I think, where a power dynamic that's already been very egalitarian becomes even more egalitarian, or the power tips a little in her favor. And she claims, like I've been saying, a, a new kind of strength that has to do with caretaking, that has to do with taking care of somebody's emotions, taking care of somebody psychologically, and in particular providing a safe space for somebody who's never had one. Because Daryl doesn't go into any depth in terms of his trauma regarding what his childhood was like. 
He tells her enough for her to know that his experience wasn't good. And she's not an idiot, and I think that she probably wouldn't be surprised to know that he was abused. But he doesn't tell her that. But I still think that she is perceptive enough and smart enough and can put pieces together enough to be able to conclude that he is he's not somebody who's had a lot of safe space in his life. So she realizes, I think, that she can kind of give him that. And all of these things, I think it's completely reasonable to think that they were in her head. I've talked a little bit about what happened after the, the hug and after Daryl breaks down, what happened between that moment and the porch. And we know that some time passed because it's full dark when they're on the porch. So I think a few hours. And something had to happen in those few hours. And I think that both characters were probably doing a lot of kind of internal stock taking. Maybe not talking to each other very much. I would actually be surprised if they spoke at all. But I think that there was a lot of kind of pulling back and working through what happened and processing. And I think that she would probably have been spending a lot of time thinking about her relationship with this man. And not in a romantic way, because I think that there's absolutely no indication until the very end of Alone that she is thinking that way at all. The O. When people say that in that context, they usually mean, oh, wow, okay. Okay, I I suddenly see this differently. And that that's kind of how she's saying it, I think. So she doesn't, she's not thinking about their relationship that way at that point. But I think that she's thinking about their connection and their capacity for connection, connection in a new way. All right. Uh, I have been talking for how long? All right, we're actually at almost half an hour now. And I'm still trying to keep this to between an hour and an hour and a half, ideally. So now I'm going to move on to the writing stuff. But please send me more meta because it's a lot of fun. So, about writing. People send in a lot of questions. I'm going to try to get to all of them. There are some I may end up having to cut. But they're also great. I really want to try and do all of them, so I'll try to keep the rambling to a minimum, which is pretty much impossible when it comes to me, but I'll do my best. Uh, writing. Uh, some of these are anonymous, some of them aren't. They're all great. I'm going to start with one from an anonymous asker. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start writing and has never done that before? Oh my god. I like reading. I have lots of ideas. But actually starting to write is kind of terrifying. I wouldn't even know where to start. Oh my fucking god. Okay. Bless you, my child. So, knowing where to start. I mean, okay. Here's a lot of people send me writing advice queries. Here's the thing that's such a problem with those. I love talking about writing. I love talking about how it's done. Uh, I love the idea that I can help people at all to the extent that I have any expertise. Doing something I don't think necessarily confers upon one very much expertise always, but people seem to think I have some and I'm happy to share it. The problem is writing is so subjective. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why almost all writing advice books are just complete shit. Don't waste your money on them. Seriously, don't. The The only two that I ever suggest that people buy are uh, Stephen King's On Writing, which is fantastic for the most part. And also there's a cool kind of little mini memoir at the end, uh, mostly to do with how he came back to writing after almost dying in a car accident. And then Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, which is so great because it captures in the most visceral way the anxiety of this. And especially, and, and one of the reasons why I'm mentioning Bird by Bird right now, especially the anxiety of knowing where the hell to start. Like, how do you even how do you even begin this endeavor? And I will say that this isn't necessarily something that gets easier when you start doing it a lot. 
there are plenty of times where I sit down to try to write something and I'm at a loss. Like, I just, I don't know. How, how does how does this even happen? I look back at all the stuff I wrote and I'm, I'm like, how did I, who was that person? Is it over? Is that it? Is, I guess it's over, guys. All right, had a good run. Bye. Uh, it's it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And it, it doesn't really actually matter very much where you're where in your writing life you're starting. Beginnings are hard. There's a there's this quote from Dune that I really love, which is beginning is a very delicate time. And it is. Endings are very difficult. Beginnings are very delicate. That doesn't mean that you should be afraid of them, because here's the thing about starting, and I don't know that this directly speaks to this question, but I'll try to kind of swing it back around. The thing about starting is that there's nothing at stake. And in fact, this is, I think, one of the things that that makes it hard for people to begin. They're so overwhelmed by the prospect of this task, especially if the idea that they've got is big. And a lot of people start writing because of that, whether whether they're, they've been writing for a while or they're writing for the first time. They have this fun idea, like this person says, lots of ideas. Some of the ideas are really big. You know, they're, they're big, they're exciting, they're ambitious. They're book length or series length. They're, they're, you see in your head an entire world and you want to dig into it and bring it out. Uh, I think it makes sense to think of writing as excavation sometimes. It feels like you're trying to dig something out of the ground and you may not get it out completely. And in fact, you never will. Know that. You you will never get the whole thing out of the ground. You just try to get as much out as you can intact. It's 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 like paleontology or archaeology. It's so delicate, you're never going to get all of it out. But just having all of this stuff and wanting to get into it and, and feeling like there's so much at stake, and that's really something that I think you have to shed. You have to you have to not think that way. Thinking that way is paralyzing, and I think it's one of the things that makes it really hard for people. When you're beginning, there is nothing at stake. Because it's a, it's a fresh page. You can start anywhere. In, in terms of knowing where to start, you can start literally fucking anywhere. And if it doesn't work, you can get rid of it. You can start somewhere else. Or not even get rid of it. You can just put it aside and say, I don't think this is working. I'm going to go back and, and try something different. So if, if, if you're terrified, if that's the primary problem, then what you need to remember is that there is nothing at stake. You're in a wonderfully free moment. The real problems that you run into, the, the the stuff that's really at stake, where things are really at stake, is when you get to the end. I mean, not to freak you out if you've never tried to do this, but when you get to the end, that's what fucks you up. One of my favorite quotes about writing comes from William Gibson, who is probably my biggest writing idol in terms of who I wish I could write like. Absolutely love him. By the way, Story Wreck. Two wrecks for books that I think are good if you can get into them that are just good kind of masterclasses in how to write certain specific kinds of things. William Gibson's short fiction collection, Burning Chrome, absolutely great, has some of my very favorite short stories in it ever, particularly his first short story, which he got published in Omni, which is, you know, that used to be a very big science fiction magazine, defunct now, sadly, but he got it published in Omni. It's called Fragments of a Hologram Rose. It's fucking amazing. And this is his first short story. I'm like, fuck you, Bill. Anyway, yeah, so there's that. And then there's pattern recognition, which is not really science fiction. It's really good, though. It's it's sort of about things going viral, and it's about community, and it's about fandom. And it has an amazing female main character who has an allergy to certain brands, which I think is a fantastic concept. It's such a great premise. Those are both really good. I recommend those very highly. He says, William Gibson says, that 
finishing a novel or getting to the point where you're trying to finish a novel is like trying to do your best dance moves while carrying a refrigerator at waist level. That is exactly what it feels like. It feels like you are carrying so much and you have to do it well. You have to carry all this shit around and then you have to... I also kind of use the idea of sticking a landing and that's really kind of what it's like. You, you, you have to do these flips and these gymnastics moves and you have to do them. You're not going to do them perfectly, but you have to do them as good as possible. And then you land and you've got to stick that landing and it's incredibly stressful. That's where things are at stake. And it's possible, by the way, to stick the landing, because I've done it. It can be done. But when you're at the beginning, there's nothing. So when you're trying to think about where to begin, jettison the terror. There's no reason for you to be scared. I mean, I know it's hard to turn that off, but don't be scared. Just just stop. And in terms of an actual place to begin, this is going to be so different depending on who you are and what you're trying to write. This is one of the things where it's difficult to offer advice because it is just so particular. What I, what I think helps, what I usually suggest to people, and this actually gets to uh, Vampire Cat's suggestions or, or comments about where she tries to generally start or where, where it helps her to start. Start small. And this kind of, I think, gets back to where you shouldn't be terrified of things. You don't have to start big. And in fact, I suggest very strongly that you don't start big because starting big will increase your sense of terror and it also kind of gives you a tendency to get bogged down in detail or to deliver way more information than you need to. You don't need to deliver all the information at once. Pick a character you think is interesting. You should at this point have some sense of who this person is, ideally. Uh, What matters to them, what they're doing, what they want, where their place is in this world that you've created and think, all right, what are they doing? They have this job in this story. You put them in the story to do a thing. What are they doing? Where are they? Is something going through their minds that's that's worth worth considering? Is there something in their heads that you want to kind of latch onto and then grow out from, from there, expand from there? Is there some kind of physical detail that you want to kind of jump into and, and make that where you build from? And just an example, I've, I've been trying to write a specific book for a really long time now, and I've been, I've been beginning it and it hasn't worked, and I've been beginning it and it hasn't worked, and I've been going through attempt after attempt after attempt. I finally hit a thing that I think might work. And where I decided to begin it was with this character, they compulsively self-harm, which is something I've written about before, and I've, I've been really wanting to write an entire book about it, because it's, it's something that I do. They're standing on a beach, looking at a sunset, and looking at their bleeding hand. And I picked that because that moment was where the plot begins. That moment is what kicks everything off. It's the catalyst. Later on, I can go back and talk about who this person is and where they are and what they're doing. I can incorporate that into all of the description and into the action and into the dialogue with other characters. But that moment is where I begin because that's the most important moment. That is where all of the rest of the plot happens from. It's very simple. It's, it's mostly the description of an image. I don't even get into the psychology until I think a couple of paragraphs later. I'm just describing the ocean, the light, the sun setting, and the blood. It's very small. I think the foundations of a story should actually be quite small. And if you start small, I think that that is a lot less intimidating than trying to just do this immense macro thing and make sure that everybody understands everything about the story before you actually start telling the story. Don't do that. The term for that is info dumping. I think that that's actually a problematic term in some ways because in some situations, info dumping a little bit is necessary. But don't begin that way. Start small. And remember that nothing is at stake. 
Nobody's going to tell you you have to do anything. If it doesn't work, get rid of it. Do something else. It's not necessarily the case that writing should always be fun because it's not going to be. Sometimes it's going to be a slog. But you should not be miserable at your beginning. Remember that you are not carrying around the fridge yet. You're not going to have to do that for a bit. Don't pick up the fridge until you have to fucking pick up the fridge. I think that's that's probably the best advice that I can give you. Uh, something else that uh, Vampire Cat says that I think is uh, useful, very useful actually, is to begin with an understanding about whose point of view you're telling the story from. I generally know that going in very early. I, I know that a story is going to be told from a particular point of view. I, I know that a story is basically, for example, going to be a Daryl story. Because it just feels like a Daryl story. Albier's first song was completely a Daryl story. And I knew that it was only going to be a Daryl story. People suggested doing other points of view, doing Beth's point of view, because it would be really interesting. And I was like, yeah, I completely agree. It would be very interesting. It's not happening. That's not what the story is like. Likewise, how? Uh, when I was really struggling with it, people said, well, Daryl's point of view is easier for you to do. Why don't you just switch to his? And I was like, no, I can't because he is not that in this story. This is Beth's story and it's really only Beth's story. This is not Daryl. And knowing that going in, even if that created some difficulties, helped because again, it, it, it gave me a way of establishing it small. And and one of the things, in fact, that this book that I've been trying to write and Hal have in common is that they both begin in the middle of something. Something is happening. And it doesn't begin at the beginning of what's happening. It begins in the middle of it. Uh, the, the the actual term for this is in, I'm probably pronouncing this incorrectly, in, in medias res, in the midst of things. Uh, and Hal begins right in the middle of a fight. The novel begins right in the middle of a really crucial thing that's just happened. She doesn't start to bite her finger. She's bitten it and she's staring at the aftermath. I think that for the most part, that's the best way of starting something, is pick something that's going on that's important and just jump right into the middle. And don't worry about explaining what's happening, because that's not generally what's going to hook a reader. Just just write what's going on, and in fact, if you don't explain everything, but you make what's going on engaging, then that's good, because that means that the person who's reading it is going to want to keep reading, so that they're like, okay, well, this seems interesting. I want to know what happened. Tell me. Ex- tell me more. Explain to me what it is that I'm seeing because I'm already intrigued by what's going on. Don't think it's going to frustrate people because if you do it well, it won't. It actually will make people want to read more. So knowing where your POV is, knowing knowing whose point of view it is, knowing whose eyes you're seeing it through, and that gives you a sense of not only what it is that's going on and not only of kind of the detail and how the person is seeing it and, and who's actually involved in this particular scene, but it also gives you a sense of how is this person reacting to it? Beth is going to react to something completely differently. The same event. Beth is going to react completely differently, probably, from Daryl. And and knowing that going in is a very important part of where you start. Uh, example uh, from Vampire Cat. If I write from Abe's point of view, there'd probably be a lot about Rosita's boobs in there. Well, if I write from Daryl's point of view, her boobs would probably not even feature. Probably not. Or if he notices that she has any, they're not going to feature like they do in Abe's head because, again, Daryl, as far as we can tell, is just completely asexual and just doesn't think about anything that way. And you start from that and you think, okay, you know, where do I go from here? Whatever information you think you need to incorporate, just stick that in as you go. Very long answer for something, I think, very basic. But that's, I think, a, a good place to start. 
Related question. When it comes to writing, this fandom is so full of amazing creative people that are so good with words and pencils is also anonymous. Obviously, you don't have to be an amazing writer, artist to be creative and have good ideas, but I'm always so jealous of the people that are able to get them out onto paper and make them pretty. I do write and draw things, but with this fandom having so much quality fan works, it can be really scary to post them. Sometimes it's scary to even try making them. Yeah, Making something creative and putting it out there is terrifying because this is something that's a very important part of you. This is something that's coming out of a very deep place. And you're carving it out of you and you're sticking it out there and saying, here it is. Tell me what you think. And actually, you don't really want to know what people think unless it's just, this is great and we love you. And have this basket of stuff and come and stay for the weekend. Black Books reference. So yeah, it's, 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 it's intimidating. And it's especially intimidating if you're surrounded by people who you really admire. It's totally fine for that to be scary. It's natural for that to be scary. And you know what? I think that you need to just kind of lean into the scary. It's, it's not that you can make yourself not be scared. It's not that you can get yourself to a point where you're not afraid to do these things. You're going to be afraid, regardless. What you do... Honestly, I think is you just, you you do the best you can, you close your eyes and you jump and you recognize that you aren't necessarily starting from the best place. Everybody has to start somewhere. I think I'm a pretty good writer by this point. When I first started writing and I started originally writing fan fiction, that's where I began. I was part of a really good community of people who were really supportive and we all helped each other write better and we all kind of, when we when we saw people who were really good or, or those of us who were really good, we used them as things to shoot for. And it was, it was great. It's very small fandom, which I think probably helped. I think it's a lot more intimidating to do these things in big fandoms. And, and the Bethel fandom is not that huge. I mean, I think we're probably one of the bigger sub-fandoms of Walking Dead, but we're not massive. But recognize that you gotta start somewhere. And one of the things that helps you get better is not writing in isolation, but actually sharing things with people. And finding a beta, I think that helps too. Finding somebody who you feel like can kind of guide you through and and give you some help in terms of getting better. But recognizing that this is just going to be frightening. And the thing about fandom, and I think that this isn't a bad thing, I worry that when I say this, people think that I'm criticizing, is that it, it tends to be very forgiving. Uh, sometimes people leave really harsh comments. Sometimes people leave really good constructive criticism. But for the most part, fandom response to stuff is very positive. It it, it just is. Frankly, regardless of, not regardless of the quality, but you don't have to be amazing to get a very positive response. I don't think that's bad. I don't look at it and go, God, these people have no standards. That's fine, because that's what fandom is for. Four, fandom is not professional writing. Fandom is about a joy fest over this thing that we all fucking love. And that's a great place to start writing because it's not abusive. It's just nothing but encouragement. That's great. I think that if you're going to start writing, fandom is probably one of the best places you can do it for that reason. So know that, yes, it's frightening. Know that if you're just starting out, you're probably not going to be as good as the people who are really good. That's okay. That isn't to say that you won't get much better. It's just you're starting from a particular place, and that's fine. And being able to put this stuff out and see that people like it, that's so good because that gives you the confidence to write more. So understand that it's frightening. Just do it. And I think that you will find that you become less afraid as you do it. It gets it gets easier. You get tougher. And it's not even that you have to toughen yourself up against something because generally people, again, are lovely. But the fear that's coming from you will become less bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay to be scared. 
Let me let me hug you through the microphone. But please, please write. Please write. Because when more people write, that's great. The more people who contribute to, to fandom, even if they're starting at kind of a not amazing place, that's wonderful. It makes the whole thing richer. The more people get excited and make things, that makes the whole world a better place. That's one of the reasons why I'm supportive of pairings and fandoms that I don't even particularly like very much. Like, I, I will never put Carol fandom down. Never. I don't, I'm not in it. I don't even love it that much. But I'm so for it. And I would defend them with, like, my fucking fandom life. Because when they get excited and make things, the world's better. A lot of them don't seem to think that about us. But I think that about them. So, yeah, do it. Just fucking do it. You can, you can. I have faith in you. I have a lot of faith in you. And I look forward to seeing what, what you produce. So, uh, another thing, uh, Abelina sent this in, and I, I think, oh God, I'm sorry, I fucking love all these questions, this is so cool. I wanted to share with you a couple of excerpts from a conversation with one of my readers. This is Abelina. This is from a comment left on Wild Things. Wild Things, Moonshine, but oh, fucking favorite ones, oh my God, read it. By someone who's been following my work in progress fall right in and decided to venture out to explore my other works. Oh my God, by the way, guys, 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 you love one thing that somebody's written, please read their other stuff. It makes me so happy when somebody reads one thing of mine and then they're like, and then I read everything and I didn't sleep for two days. That's just, that's, that's, that's so great. Yeah. They make, first make note of the differences between the two fics, not just plot-wise, but also the way in which the relationship develops and the differences between Daryl's processing of that, as well as both Beth and Daryl's differing responses to similar events in each story. Here's the comment. It's super interesting to read them parallel to your ongoing big project, which, as you know, is my ultimate favorite Beth Daryl fanfic. This is Fall Right In. I understand this story has sprung out from a fabulous little paragraph from Fall Right In's early chapters, and you went with it in quite a different direction. Mostly I'm impressed that while rejecting the Walking Dead canon so spectacularly, yeah, you managed to create not one, but many fantastic alternative canons of your own, all very enjoyable with a sweet common core, but also delicious differences. There's a little bit more, but, but in the interest of time, I'll skip directly to Abelina's questions. The, the questions that for her come out of this. Why do we create so many alternative canons? What inspires authors to take the same two characters, same starting point, and create vastly different scenarios? Why have the same character behave one way in one fic? in a different way in another. I mean, the, this is, the answer to that is almost impossible because, it's again, it's so subjective it's going to be different for so many people. What inspires us to create so many alternative canons is kind of what the person commenting on Wild Things said. We're rejecting the canon. We're responding to what we view as shortcomings in canon. Or we're just seeing a part of canon that we think is okay, but we can see so many other ways in which you could approach it, and we think those ways are worth exploring. That's why fanfiction exists, among other things. And we have a particular thing we think is interesting, and we want to chase that thing down. And vastly different scenarios, I think that's one of the reasons why we would even want to do it. We, we see something... And we think, wouldn't it have been fascinating if this had gone in a completely different way? Not even a slightly different way, but just totally in the opposite direction. And I think you see that a lot in, in Alone Fix, in Canon Divergent Alone Fix. What would have happened if Beth hadn't been kidnapped? What would have happened if there hadn't been that coitus interruptus, except coitus was not occurring, uh, with the walkers at the door? What would have happened? Because that scene ended so abruptly. It was cut off. It was cut off very purposefully, I believe, because it was fucking cliche. What would have happened if that scene had continued? And that's so interesting. And so many people have a different take on that, and so many people want to explore it. And, and I, I mean, I think that's kind of self-evident. 
Yeah. Uh, in terms of why have the same character behave in one way in this fic and a different way in another, I, I think that's a really interesting question, too. And I think that that gets more interesting, obviously, when, when you're dealing... Uh, it's interesting regardless, but it gets more interesting when you're dealing with a, a writer who has a really broad over. Probably not saying that right either. Uh, who, who's just who's incredibly prolific and who's written a lot, which I am one of. And I keep saying that Daryl is is the character who's probably easiest for me to get into for a whole lot of reasons. And one of the, the things that people are very complimentary about, and I thank them so deeply, is to my Daryl. I get a lot of compliments on my Daryl. Or my Daryls. But it actually, here's the thing, it actually kind of is just one Daryl. Because all of my Daryls are coming from one singular interpretation of this character. And why they change is that the circumstances change. And the circumstances... Like like Abelina says, the circumstances are going to be so different. And in order to be able to write those different circumstances well, you know this character, you think about them a lot, and then knowing that character helps you to get a sense of, all right, these are incredibly different places. How would they respond? So Albior's first song is, that's a really specific circumstance and the background's really specific and the setting is really specific and what's going on and what the catalyst for the events are and how the catalyst proceeds that's going to guide him in a specific direction and where it guides him and how it works is going to be based on my initial interpretation my root interpretation of that character but where he ends up is going to be so fucking different and then you go to something like safe up here with you where he's beginning at this awful place and it's the same daryl as Albier's first song, at heart, it's really the same guy. It's just that what's happened to him is so different. Because in, in Save Up Here With You, he's he's lost Beth, and then he's discovered that she's alive, and she refuses to believe that she's alive, and she thinks she's dead, and she thinks she's a walker a lot of the time, or she thinks she's in hell, and it's awful, and he's in a bad place, and he's depressed, and he's really upset, and so is she, and then it just fucking goes to hell. Whereas Albier's first song goes to hell for a while, and then is just sweet and happy and kind of has the sort of happy ending, but also kind of not. Anyway, and then Hal's very different because he's a fucking werewolf. And and Albier's first song, Daryl in his truck, working for this dude at this feed and seed, meeting this girl by the side of the road who sings for him and is cute, completely different than Daryl who meets this girl who's cute, but meets her while she's fighting monsters and he's a werewolf and he attacks them and almost dies and she drags him back to his apartment and he's naked and she takes care of his wounds and she's really snarky and he's like, oh god, like, who's this person? Don't get me with a silver knife! Because she does that. And it's, yeah, it's really different. And Beth is also really similar, but so, like, in, in Albier's first song, she's very much fourth-season Beth if the zombie apocalypse hadn't happened. And in Hal, she's Beth after having lost her whole family and having run away from home and being really world-weary and traumatized. And it's the same Beth. It's just very different. I have one core understanding of Beth, and it varies depending on the setting that I'm putting them in. And that's one of the things that I love about fanfiction so much is that you're starting in a very particular place. And the place that you're starting at has so much to do with individual subjective author interpretation of the character. But then all of these different scenarios are about knowing that character, throwing them into a completely different setting and seeing what they do. You're changing the settings. Starting with one thing and you're sliding the slider things around. That's so fun. Okay, moving on. Oh, I, I, this is another cool question. This is from... They're all cool. This is from Silly Mummy 2010. 
And actually, a couple people wanted to know about this. Keeping everything organized and backstory straight is my biggest issue. I have to write down everything that secondary characters do just to make sure the right things happen later on. And something that a couple other people commented on was that I appear to do this well. Uh, no. I don't. The the tenor of these couple of comments slash questions, A, that it's difficult, and B, can you please help me make it less difficult? I'm not good at it, guys. I don't fucking know. Um, it's really hard. Uh, one of the, the only ways in which I can maintain the consistency of the organization of something long is to just buckle down and work on it all the time. One of the reasons why HAL has been difficult for me, and I've talked about this, is that the world is massive. I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a world guide that I personally have to go back and refer to. I forget that I have words for shit. Like, I have, I have words in this other language, and I have to go back and make sure that I haven't already thought of them if I need to think of new ones. And what's the deal with this particular piece of mythology? And what's the particular rule in this culture for this thing? And I can't remember. And it's, it's big. Hal feels like I'm carrying a fridge around. And the fridge, what's written on the fridge in magnets is world building. It's huge. And it's terrifying, and it's really hard. And it's very, very difficult to get into, and it's one of the reasons why I don't write it very quickly. Uh, it's completely different from something I'll, like I'll Be Yours for a Song, which, in terms of world building, was really relatively simple. And in terms of what actually goes on with the plot in that story, it's very simple. That is not a complicated story. It's very straightforward. The arc is very simple. In many ways, it's kind of predictable, which is fine. Predictable does not mean bad, but it's simple. Howl's fucking complicated as shit. It's really hard to write that. And I don't write things down. And that's another reason why I'm really bad at this. I am terrible at keeping notes. I basically don't. That's not good. I should do that. I'm not saying don't keep notes. No, keep notes. Don't be me. Please don't be me. Uh, if, if you have a difficult time with this at all, keep copious notes. And it's still going to be tough. I, I can't help you. <laughs> it's hard. And yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing to be done. If you're really really have a hard time with it, it's just going to be hard. And you probably won't get better. People who are not naturally mentally inclined to do this kind of thing well, that's just not how their brains work. And to some degree, brains are plastic. Uh, neuroplasticity is a thing. You can sort of get yourself to a point where you might be a little better at it. But for the most part, no. If you suck, you're going to suck. And it sucks. And you just it's sort of like being terrified. You lean into it, and you write anyway. And you also, maybe recognize that you're limited a little bit by this and maybe you shouldn't be working on a lot of different projects at once. Or maybe you should recognize that if you're working on something really complicated, a singular project, proceed carefully. Try to stay engaged, try to write some of it every day and take notes and recognize it's going to be tough. And, and this is one of the things, by the way, that is so, so scary about doing something serially. When you're writing a novel or anything long, and you're writing it by yourself, you're not writing it to be posted or shared or submitted until the whole thing's done and you've made at least a couple of editing passes. That's a lot easier because then you can go back and you can correct errors or inconsistencies. You can have somebody else take a look at it and you can correct stuff. And, and it's not a mess plot-wise, world-building-wise, consistency-wise, when it goes out there for readers. If you're writing something serially, uh, you get something really wrong... I mean, you can kind of go back and fix it, but people have already read it at that point, and you can't really pretend it didn't happen, so you have to just kind of be like, look, I, I fucked up. 
this thing is complicated and I'm, I'm working, I'm working with, you're seeing the sausage get made. I'm working with all the doors open and all the windows open. It's an ugly process and there are mistakes that get made. I'm amazed with Hal that as far as I can tell, I haven't fucked up more than I have. That's incredible. I don't know how that's happened. Um, I, I expect fully that at some point I will just make a huge mistake and I'll forget something that happened, like the beginning of the story. It's just, if you're, if you're doing this in that way, if you're posting things serially, if this is hard for you, uh, I don't know. I'll sit down next to you and hand you a beer because it's just kind of how it is. Yeah, that was, that was completely unhelpful. Sorry, but at least you're not alone, right? There's nothing wrong with you. You're just that kind of writer. And that's okay, because everybody's different. And some people find things hard, and some people find things easy. And one of the things that's great about writing community is that you can all kind of hang out and talk about it. That's great. Okay, uh, Benevolent108 asked me to talk about plagiarism. Uh, Comment, I was reading a new story that seemed familiar. New is in quotes. I decided to read the second chapter thinking maybe it was my imagination, but it had an entire scene lifted word for word from another fic. The only difference changing Norman slash OC to Daryl and Beth. Makes me angry because I can only imagine what goes into writing these stories. A fucking lot. Authors pour their souls into their work and someone comes along and steals it. It's disgusting. Yes, it is. To my knowledge, this has never happened to me. Uh, But uh, like I said, I'm bad at reading and it's entirely possible that it has. In terms of me commenting on it, I, I, I I don't really know what to say. I mean, this is a mindset that I have a really hard time getting into. And it's that's not me saying, well, I'm a better person than that person. I am a better person than that person, vastly. But that's not exactly why I think it's hard for me to, to, to get into that mindset. I think there's a disconnect there between wanting to produce very good work and have that work recognized, which is, if you're a writer, like, I am, I'm a snob. Know that. You, you already should know that if, you've, if you know me and have listened to other podcasts. I'm a snob really irritating about being one. And I have a very strict understanding of what a writer is. And if you don't meet that, as far as I'm concerned, you're, I'm sorry, you're not one. First of all, you write, obviously. And secondly, you actually care about doing it well. And that doesn't mean that you are great. It doesn't mean that you kill yourself over trying to be great. It just means you try to do the best you can. And ideally, you're always trying to get better. So, so wanting to produce great work or, or wanting, not great, wanting to produce the best work that you reasonably can I don't know how to not feel that way. That's just always how I felt, even when I was writing shit. Even when I was this, like, five-year-old kid writing... I wrote this, like, five times. I don't know why. I had this story about a flower. I don't remember the plot. It was illustrated. I, I, I wrote it, I illustrated it, and I stapled it together. So it was a book. And I wrote this, like, five times. I think I was writing copies I don't, I don't completely remember what my thought process was. But I was trying to write the best goddamn story about a magic flower that I could. I was really working hard. And I kind of, I think, on one level knew that it was shit. But I was trying. I was just trying to be good. I don't know how to not do that. I, I don't know how to sit down and write something and not, in that moment, try to make it as good as I can. And then, of course, if, if you make something that you think is at least halfway decent... You want people to recognize it. And I don't... Here's here's the thing about that for me. And I think this is actually probably true of a lot of people. A lot of writers, and I think a lot of people. Some of it's ego. A lot of it's ego. A, a, an absolutely tremendous amount of it is ego. But 
it's not just that. It's wanting writing good stuff or writing the best stuff you think you can and wanting somebody to recognize it or, or wanting a lot of people to recognize it and go, wow, it's really good work. It's not just about ego. It's also, it's, it's almost about justice. Like, it's almost about if the world is fair, then good work needs to be recognized, whether it's my work or somebody else's work. You want to see good work noted. You want to see good work appreciated. You want to see good work appreciated over shitty work. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of us are offended on a really deep level when shit work makes a lot of money. It's one of the reasons why I was so resentful of Fifty Shades. Some of it was was just that I wanted the money. You see somebody making a lot of money, you go, oh, God, I wish that was me. But that's not, most of it actually wasn't that for me. It was like, I write porn that is a hundred million times better than this. I write porn that is so much better than this, that if you actually made like a physical scale between this porn and my porn, it would take multiple light years to cover that distance. You, you couldn't do it in a single human lifetime. We're talking about orders of magnitude better. And this person is rich beyond what I will ever be. That doesn't just make me mad for ego reasons. That offends me on a deep level because it's like the world is just fucked up, you guys. People who do bad work should not be rewarded for it. And that, this isn't even about plagiarism anymore, is it? Anyway, yeah. Um, it is, I, it actually is. I'm going to drag it back to being about plagiarism. It matters so much for me to do the best I can. So the idea, and I think actually that's, I mean, that's true for everybody I know. I don't think I know anybody who wants to be just like, I, I want to produce this thing with my name on it, and it can be shit, but I want everybody to love it. We all want to do good work. That's why we do what we do. I can't understand on a deep level. Like, I kind of understand, I think, that people want attention. I, I think what's going on with these people is they just want attention. They just want people to tell them that they're great. And they don't want to do the work involved in, in having people tell them that they're great. And that comes down to personal integrity. It would really piss me off if I wrote something that I knew was awful and everyone was like, this is amazing. I'd be like, no, it's not. I have all this other good stuff. Go go look at that. What are you talking about? It's These people just want the attention and they don't want to have to work for it. I, I, I should note that I'm a college instructor. Just about every semester I've had somebody plagiarize and I've caught them. If you're a college student, by the way, and I know some people who follow me are, don't fucking do that. Just don't. I'm sure you won't because all of you are wonderful people. Don't plagiarize because, okay, it's shitty. It's also insulting because it's like, I don't think this person's going to notice. I fucking Google things. I, f I catch you. I will. I understand that because there's a lot of pressure to get good grades, but I don't understand this, except I kind of do. On a really deep level, I don't understand how somebody can do this. Yes, it's disgusting. I don't know if this is the kind of comment you wanted from me, but I'm just kind of going with you and being like, yeah, this is like one of the grossest things that I think somebody can do in terms of creativity. And in, in terms of the actual thing itself, I'm like, I, maybe you are asking my opinion on how to have it not happen. You can't keep it from happening. People are going to do it. What I want is for when people do that, I want people to make their lives miserable. Uh, I, I want people who do that. I want their fandom names everywhere. I want everybody ostracizing them. I want, I want them driven away, and I want them never to be allowed back in. I think this should be a cardinal sin. That, by the way, is a way to prevent them from doing it again. And yeah, they can slink back in under a new name, but yeah, show no mercy. Just absolutely tear those people apart. That's a good thing. Okay, finally, 
And this, I save this for last because this is something I have so many goddamn feelings about. And I think it's important to talk about. And it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently for, for a number of reasons. Uh, that I, I don't want to go into now because it's 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 like a podcast in itself. But I'll probably be, be blogging about it on my author blog at some point soon. And the question, uh, Anonymous, why do you think some writers and or readers of fan fiction feel ashamed of doing so or want to keep it secret? Most people I know seem to prefer not to let others know they partake in this kind of reading and writing. It seems like you're at least semi-public about it. It's me. So I'm curious as to your opinion. And those of you who've shared it with your personal life, what is the usual response to it? So actually, that last question, uh, I'd be interested in hearing from people if you guys have any things to report. Like, uh, have you, quote-unquote, come out to people as being in fandom, as writing or reading fanfiction? And, and what, what do they say? Like, what, do they, what did they respond with? Because I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's really interesting, especially because I think that the place of fan fiction culturally is in a bit of a transition state. And I think a lot of that is due to things like Fifty Shades. There, I think, is, is more of a recognition. And this is me kind of getting into the question. There is a, a greater degree of recognition in the publishing industry and in, I think, just the world of readership in general that a lot of writers are coming out of fandom. And a lot of them haven't necessarily stopped when they become pros. I haven't. Uh, my uh, friend Alyssa Wong, as far as I know, haven't, hasn't. I, I know a lot of people who continue to do it, even though they're professionals. Uh, Shauna McGuire, I think, is probably one of the bigger names who uh, has been very open about the fact that she has a really close relationship with fan fiction. Cecilia Tan who's one of the bigger erotica writers, uh, especially science fiction erotica. She actually was one of the first people publishing some of my stuff, which were short erotica stories. She runs Circlet Press, which is absolutely fantastic. By the way, I recommend all their stuff. Uh, she, she wrote and writes Harry, as far as I know, she still does, Harry Potter fan fiction. And, you know, loves it. And it's super important. And she's not really quiet about it. She writes under a different name. She's not like me. But yeah. I, they, I think there is a greater degree of recognition on the part of just about everybody professionally that this is something that people do. And it's something that is valuable in terms of teaching you how to write. That value, I think, is where there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of disagreement and a fair amount of stigma. Why do people feel ashamed of doing so? Because it's stigmatized. Now, why it's stigmatized is so complicated. And again, that's like a, that's like a podcast in itself. It's stigmatized in part because transformative fandom, and I've written about this on my blog a little bit, transformative fandom is feminized. Curative fandom, in terms of knowing trivia, in terms of knowing stuff, is masculine. Who is more knowledgeable about something? Who has more information at their fingertips? Who has access to more information? That's the stuff that I think is more generally culturally valued because that's generally stuff that people consider more masculine. It's still kind of stigmatized because, you know, we have this thing about, like, comic book guy. We have this thing about nerds in general still. A lot less than we used to. Because, you know, it's it just our whole idea of geek has kind of changed for a number of reasons. But still, we do kind of look down on that a little bit. And one of the reasons why we do is because it's seen as a lesser form of masculinity. There's so much of this is about gender, you guys. But transformative fandom in terms of making and doing and changing things is highly feminized. And one of the reasons why it's highly feminized is that a huge number of people in it are women slash people who don't identify as men slash queer people. Basically, everybody who's not a cisgender guy, cisgender straight guy, 
Which is not to say that there are no cisgender straight men in fandom, in transformative fandom, there completely are, but I think that they're in the minority. And that is going to mean that this is something that people are going to be more reluctant to be honest about being involved in, just because people will kind of look askance at them if they do so. So that, I think, just culturally in general, that's something that is it, it, that makes it difficult for people to admit that they're part of. It's just It's just stigmatized. So feeling ashamed of something means you want to keep it a secret. Like, yeah. And one of the things about fan fiction in particular is it's stigmatized in a number of ways. I talked about this a little bit when I was talking about uh, smut in the last episode or the last couple of episodes. We have this thing culturally about gatekeepers. Uh, And I I, I both don't like it and I understand the reason for it. Um, That's true of a lot of things for me. I, I don't like them, but I know why they're there. And in fact, I think maybe it's better that they're there than not be there. One of the things about which I feel very ambivalent is gatekeeping. And there is a, a general sense among everybody that when there are gatekeepers, what you get is better. And in particular, that when you're dealing with things like entertainment, when there are people who decide what's good enough to put out there, then generally speaking, what you get is better. This is sometimes true. This is often not true. Again, we can go back to Fifty Shades for this. You can also look at Michael Bay. Uh, you can look at Chris Carter recently. Why the fuck does anyone let that man write? Oh my god. There are so many people who are allowed to produce things who have no business doing so. So gatekeeping is not by any means a way of making sure that everything that gets out there is good, but that is kind of, I think, what a lot of people think. When there are no gatekeepers, when there's no barriers to entry, uh, we we are highly suspicious of that. And the thing about fandom is that there there are no barriers to entry. Access to a computer... I think is really the, or, or now access to like a, a smartphone, because anything that allows you to get online, that's kind of all you need. And yeah, a lot of people don't have that. So it's not like there are no barriers to entry, but in terms of producing fan work, go nuts. Like you don't need very much to allow you to do that. And one of the things that that results in is there's really no quality control. That much is true. And one of the things that I mentioned when I was talking about smut is I talked a little bit about uh, the slush pile breakdown in professional writing, how the slush pile is just the pile of of stuff that people submit to publishers. And it's anybody who can send anything sends it and it's just slush. And what you're doing is you're kind of searching through it for anything that's that's good. And the overall uh, convention, and it's generally true, is that 90% of what you get in the slush pile is absolutely terrible. It's not readable. It's, It's not just bad, it's just unbelievably bad. It's incoherent. It can be ranty. It can be kind of creepy. It's just not good. And then there's there's 10% that's, that's good, that's competent. You know, it's not great, but it's okay. And then there's like 1% that's really great. And 1% is still a lot, because think about how big a slush pile probably is. If you have... Think about all the people in the world who write. Think about all the people in the world who want to be professionally published. Then think about how big that pile is probably going to be. Even if we're dealing with a relatively small magazine or a relatively small publisher. Fan fiction is the slush pile. It's just out there. Everybody sees it. Not just the people who have to read the slush for the publishers. Everybody sees the slush pile. So everybody sees that 90% of it's shit. It's not specific to fan fiction. It's just that people see it, so they think that it's specific to fan fiction. Very few people actually know how professional publishing works. Either they don't know, or they don't care to know. And I think, in fact, for the most part, people just don't care to know. But I'm telling you, that's how it works. 
there's really no difference between fanfiction and professional publishing in terms of the amount of shit. It's just that you see it with fanfiction. And that's one of the things that stigmatizes it. People think it's all bad. It's not. It's exactly the same profile. So that's one reason why. Another reason why is that people think a lot of it's, or people think almost all of it's porn. And they're not wrong. Uh, I, I don't know what the actual breakdown is, but a huge amount of it's porn. It's just really good porn, a lot of it. But we do, this is something else that is, is, it's not just specifically about fandom, it's cultural in general. We have this idea that if anything, it contains a lot of sexual content, it's not going to be good. And we have that idea because most porn is shit. Because if you're just making something for somebody to get off to it, how good does it have to be? We don't have this sense that there have to be high standards when we're dealing with pornography. And that isn't necessarily incorrect, but it's reified in the sense that we behave as if it's true. We produce things as if it's true. And it ends up, it ends up being true. And what very few people end up questioning is whether it has to be that way. And of course, the answer is no, it doesn't. So people think that all fan fiction is bad. It's not. People think that all fan fiction is smut. It's not. People think that all smut is bad. It's not. You have all of those things going against it, and all of those things contribute to it being very stigmatized. And then there's another important component of why this stuff is stigmatized, and it's capitalism. I'm not kidding. It is. I'm not being a crazy Marxist here. It's capitalism. We exist within the context of a culture where if something has no monetary value, it doesn't have any value at all. Here's the thing about what a market is. I'm sorry, I'm kind of an economics geek, actually. I almost was an economist, and then I realized how much math was involved, and then I was like, no, because I have a math disability, and I also hate it. It's The thing about what a market is, is it's a giant value calculator. It can be a giant value calculator that fucking breaks and is awful and does not do what it's supposed to do. But on paper, or, or whatever, a market is a machine that calculates value. That's really all it does at, at its heart. So... We understand the worth of something by what the calculation of its value ends up being. And we don't do this consciously, but because we are a society, a culture, everything, so based on the very basic assumption about monetary value, and it's, it's something that we're embedded in from birth, so it's something we don't even think about, we tend to regard something without monetary value as valueless. And the thing about fandom is that it's based on a gift economy. Fandom is not monetized, or not generally, and I personally don't think it ever should be. I think that there are some things capitalism should just never fucking touch, and I think fandom is one of those. And people look at something like fanfiction and they go, well, they're doing it for free, so how good can it be? They're not conscious that they're thinking that, but I think most of them are. So add that in. Add in the fact that, that fandom does not conform to a capitalist model, and it's, it's not going to be regarded very respectfully. So all of those things, gender, economics, gatekeeping, all of those things go into making fan works slash fandom slash fan fiction not well regarded, which means you're not going to want to be open about the fact that you're taking part in it. In terms of being semi-public about it, I have not yet experienced any seriously detrimental effects. Now, I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I haven't been very, very open about this with a lot of the people who I consider professional colleagues in, in publishing. I haven't been very open about it because of how much time I put into it. Uh, I put a tremendous amount of time into this. For a number of reasons, a lot of them having to do with my mental health, I have been writing so much more fan fiction this past year than I've been writing anything that I could be paid for. I chose to do that. 
that I'm not saying I did this as a favor to all of you, you assholes. I did this because I wanted to, because this is where I was finding my fulfillment. But I wrote almost or over a million words of fan fiction in 2015. Not exaggerating. I, I tallied it up not too long ago. We're talking about a million words. It's more words than I have ever written in my life before. In terms of writing, just flat out, 2015 is the most productive year I've ever had. It's just that I can't get paid for most of it. And confessing to people who do this professionally that this is where you've been putting most of your time and energy into stuff that, you know, it might be fine if it's a hobby. It might be okay if you used to write it, but you're not really supposed to be putting most of your energy into it now because it, it, well, it's just kind of silly, isn't it? It's kind of a silly little thing. I mean, my sense is that's how most of them feel, or that's how a lot of people feel. So I am, it's not that I'm reluctant to say that I do it. What I am reluctant to do is to confess how much time I put into it, how much energy I put into it, and most of all, how important it is to me. That it's not a hobby. That this has become a, a significant part of my creative life. This has become crucial to my relationship with my own writing. Uh, that's, that's not something you're supposed to feel. I don't think. Uh, something else I'm going to write a blog post about uh, for my author blog, hopefully at some point soon, is the idea of what you're supposed to be doing versus what you want to do. And trying to walk that tightrope between, okay, here's what I'm supposed to be doing, but here's what I actually want to do. And those two things are not the same thing. How do I balance? What do I allow myself to do? Uh, how, what's my relationship with it emotionally? Am I blaming myself? Is there something wrong with me? Am I broken? It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. I think that it's not more uncomfortable if you're dealing with it from my perspective where it's professional, but I think it's uncomfortable differently. And I hate it. It's, it's made the past year a source of a lot of anxiety for me. I was already dealing with depression and anxiety. It's one of the reasons why I vanished into fandom, but it has not been helping. There are some ways in which uh, fandom has actually made my life a lot more difficult. Not pleased about that. I've sort of, I guess I've sort of decided it's worth it, but it's something I've been doing a lot of thinking about and it's something I think I have to start confronting much more publicly because I can't keep lying about it. I can't pretend this doesn't mean a lot to me. I just kind of have to come out and say it. And uh, I've been feeling really, you guys, I'm going to talk about my problems for a minute. I've been feeling really depressed about my writing career for a lot of reasons and I've sort of been thinking, well, I might as well tell people about this shit because it's not like I have a career to ruin. I'm I'm okay, actually. It's it's just been hard. But yeah, it's complicated. All of this is complicated. And I think that, like I've been saying, if you find this emotionally difficult, just like everything else I've been talking about being emotionally difficult, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a broken person. It's emotionally difficult, and I think even the most well-adjusted person is going to struggle. So what really matters is how you personally respond and what you have to do in order to make yourself happy and healthy. And the road to that is not going to be easy or clear. But at the end of the day, and this is something that I'm, I'm wrestling with and I'm, I'm trying to find a way through, your priority should be you. And if that's hard for other people to accept, you have to try to push past it. Because if, if what you're supposed to be doing isn't making you happy, then you really, honestly, you kind of shouldn't be doing it. And you, and you should think about what should means. Because I, I think what should means is frequently kind of bullshit. It's, it's just that it's, it's hard to really internalize what you know intellectually. Yeah, that's tough. This is something I'm always happy to discuss, by the way. If this is ever something you want to talk about, you know, drop it in my inbox. Uh, when I have feelings about something, I'm happy to commiserate. 
Hmm. Okay. I'm going to get to reading because I've been talking long enough. And this is something I actually got a request for. I've been wanting to read it for a while. It's it's me, again. Um, I'm sorry, I keep reading me. But this is something somebody asked, and, and I wanted to go ahead and fulfill that request. Uh, this is a story I really love because it's kind of meta. Uh, I, I do that periodically. I write, I write stories about stories. And I don't just do that with fan fiction. I do it uh, with a lot of my stuff because I love stories, and I love talking about stories. And the prompt for this, this came out of a prompt, is, is actually, is, it's pretty basic. It didn't have to become this. It, it actually, I didn't, I don't really know why it became this. It's, it's something I think a lot of other people have written. Uh, the first night Beth comes back to him in Alexandria. A lot of people have written that scenario. And a lot of people have done some great things with that scenario. And I think what happened is I looked at it and what I sort of thought was, well, a lot of people have written this. And I love it. But I want to take it and go in a really weird direction with it. Because I like being weird. So what I did was I ended up writing about the night Beth comes back to Daryl in Alexandria. And then thinking, what are all the ways people have written about this? What are all the different scenarios? What if I told a story about all those different scenarios? And it actually, it, it, it isn't, I think, one of my better known fix, But it's one of my very favorites. It's actually part of the Footage Not Found series. So yeah, I'm going to dive into it. I hope you guys like it. It's not porn, by the way. It's, it's, it's completely family-friendly. Well, it's mostly family-friendly. There might be a little bit of a reference to sex in it. But yeah, it's not smut for once. Yeah, here we go. I'll see you on the flip side. We'll scream our names to the heavens and the plains by dynamic symmetry. They tell stories about this. It's worth telling stories about. There are a lot of things in play here which are decidedly story-worthy. There is a miraculous return from the dead. There is an incredible journey culminating in an improbable and tearfully heartfelt reunion. There's pain and difficulty and turmoil, and nothing runs smoothly or perfectly because nothing ever does. It's true that people often prefer their myths and legends simple, but it's also true that people appreciate a struggle. No one wants their heroines and heroes to triumph easily. Most of all, there is an epic fucking love story. That part doesn't become obvious until later, but by then in the story people are aware that it was there for a long time before that. That it came slowly into being, like a blooming thing emerging from deep soil. That it came in its own sweet time, and while there was never a happily ever after, there was a great deal of happiness. That if the reunion with everyone was improbable, this match was more improbable still, and it took some people a while to accept it. But they did, eventually. Because everyone loves an epic fucking love story, don't they? Bet your ass they do. So people tell stories. Because in this brave new world, a lot of new stories need to be made. Years after all of the people directly involved are dead and gone, some far too soon and some long after they were supposed to be, the stories remain. The nature of stories is for them to change in the telling. Sometimes a large amount, and sometimes only in small increments. But sooner or later, one story will accumulate many different versions. As such, it becomes difficult to know for certain what exactly happened, and to differentiate between the truth and what, in time, people come to believe the truth to be. But here's the thing. Maybe the truth ultimately doesn't matter, because the stories become what people need, and people draw what they need from those stories. What they need to learn, to understand, to find courage and hope and faith, to know how to live, to accept how to die. What they need to be strong. And she was so very strong, wasn't she? Yes, she was. 
There are a lot of parts of this particular story. A lot of chapters and acts. Of course, plays have been written about this. No one will ever stop wanting to pretend to be these people and live these stories. And arcs, rising and falling action. Endless prologues and complex denouement. But one particular part to which people keep returning is that one first night with these two heroes. And what happened between them. And what was said. And what was done. And how much. And how far it went. And what it all meant. Of this part, probably the most numerous versions have been made. There's the version where not much happens at all, where he has no idea what to do and neither does she, so they orbit each other, or rather he orbits her, as she's surrounded by her joyful, disbelieving family like planets around a star, and he takes a place as a body on a wide elliptical, always coming toward her but taking a very long time, and an outer body, constantly kept distant from the inner system. He was one of them until he wasn't. And she's always watching him in the midst of all this chaos, them demanding to know how and when and what happened and how far and how long and what she saw and did, and then they tell each other to leave her alone, let her rest, and then promptly disregard their own advice. And all the time he circles her, caught in an endless gravitational tug from which he can't imagine wanting to escape. He'll come to her when he's ready, when he can bear it. But not that night. There's the version similar to that one, but instead of confining himself to the edges of things, he's with her in that bright center, silent but present, and present in the deepest and most profound way, at her side like a dog in the best sense the comparison can be made, strong, loyal, unwavering, demanding nothing of her except the privilege and the honor of being there, and that honor isn't something he wants to flaunt or boast about. He keeps it secret, keeps it only for himself, but he feels honored, that he feels as if she's blessing him, and that he's so blessed he can't look at her when she lays a hand over his, when she allows him to finally accompany her upstairs and see her into bed before leaving for his own. Everyone sees this, them together, and how they are with each other, and many of them draw their own conclusions. Then there's the version where he accompanies her to her bed and doesn't leave her, where he lies down with her and threads his fingers through hers and watches her until she's asleep, and watches her after because he can't take his eyes off her. Watches over her, even if there's no more immediate danger. In this version, or in some of its own variants, he lifts a hand and strokes her hair back from her face, and his fingers linger over the scar on her cheek, and he touches it, traces it, touches the others, even the most terrible one, because he has to. In order to fully believe, he has to. And he only does this because he knows that if she were awake she would allow him to do so. She would want him to. But that would be something else he couldn't bear. Not yet. There's the version where he comes to bed with her, lies down beside her, and the touching doesn't stop with their hands, where she undresses him and then undresses herself and lies back and asks him to look at her and see her, see everything. And he does, and it makes him tremble. And he trembles harder when she draws him down and kisses him, kisses him for such a long time, and his trembling becomes a bone-deep shuddering as she touches him everywhere, asks him to touch her, and he does. And that exploration lasts for hours, even though they're both exhausted almost beyond belief. He's still shaking when she takes him in her hand and guides him slowly into her, and the sounds he makes seem to have more in common with pain than pleasure, and in fact he is hurting, and so is she, because when people have been waiting this long for something this good, it's always going to hurt, a little the first time. That first night, they love each other in the most complete way they can, 
and they go on until they can't anymore, and she pulls him into her arms and kisses his tears away as the sun rises and washes over them both. People really like that last one. They ask to hear it over and over. But then there's one more. Less well-known, this one. Less popular. More simple at its heart. But there are a few people who say it's the closest version to the truth, and those people might have reason to know. Some say they might have even been there, though there's a lot of disagreement on that point. Regardless, this version isn't long, nor is it very detailed, because something this simple doesn't need to be. In this one, there's her as the brilliant sun, and him orbiting the edges, silent, and he's weak with shock and shaking a little, tears still standing in his eyes, but he's smiling at her, a small smile that she's seen before, and he's not impatient. He knows his time is coming. And when everyone else staggers off to bed and leaves her alone, she finds him smoking on the porch steps, and she sits down next to him, and after a moment or two, she tips herself against him and leans her head on his shoulder. And after another moment or two, he leans his head against the crown of hers and lifts an arm, slides it around her, and holds her close. Neither of them says anything. There's nothing to say. Maybe later there will be, a lot of things. But for now, the night is quiet, and even with the distant hisses and groans of walkers outside the walls, peaceful. Their needs are simple, simple as this story, and always have been. He never wanted very much. A safe place to be, and her in it, and he would have been satisfied for the rest of his life, however long it ended up being. And no one's sure about that part. No one's sure about her, about how long they lived. Some people say they died together, fighting back to back, saving family, or friends, or complete strangers. Some people say they were two of the few who do live to old age now, and they died side by side in the same bed, her minutes after him, their hands clasped tight, smiles on their faces. Then some say they just disappeared. One day they walked away into the world, hand in hand, and never came back. That they were never seen again, and no trace of them was ever found. Those people, in their most honest moments, say these two might return someday, when they're most needed. This is the best part of myth and legend. The idea that nothing ever really ends. That everything gets a return. That part isn't true, of course. Of course not. It's just a nice story, don't you think? Now go to bed. It's late and your parents will be angry. No, I won't tell you how I got the scars. Maybe tomorrow. Some other time. Yes, it's quite a story. But I'm tired too. I have to go. He's waiting for me. So that's it. Hope you like that. This is the end of the show. Uh, next time, I, I've already settled on a topic, which is cool, because often I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. Uh, next time, I'm going to be talking about violence and dark stuff. So uh, if you have any opinions about that, if you have any opinions about darkness in your fic and what you feel about it and disturbing themes and where you're willing to go and where you don't want to go and what kinds of things interest you and what kinds of things you would like to see more of, maybe, uh, I'd be very interested to hear. I write a lot of dark stuff. I write a lot of disturbing stuff. So this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart. 
Uh, also, I'll be doing more meta. Please send me meta requests. Please send me Rex, although I already have some to read. And if you are interested, this podcast has a website. It's Keep Singing Podcast, all one word, dot wordpress.com. Also, uh, I'm on iTunes, just a reminder, which I think is really cool. So if that's where you get your podcasts, you can subscribe there, and that's awesome. Thanks for listening. I will hopefully talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. <laughs>